0: Hello and welcome to the Nissan Nerd Podcast. My name is Mike DeLashmut, and with me is Mr. Miles Hall. Today's episode is an interview which evolved out of a post that we had on our Facebook page not too long ago. Uh, We had gotten numerous responses from it, and the story quickly, it just snowballed into something much bigger. And so we knew we had to dive into it further. Uh, Of course, we are talking about Nissan's Delta Wing project. Uh, We're talking with the now recently retired Nissan North America communications manager, Mr. Steve Yeager. Miles, you want to tell us some more about this?
1: Yeah, you know the Delta Wing project has always been of interest to me. Um, I've been a huge fan of it since its uh, theory, and then um, ultimately its uh, its inception and the prototype. <laughs> You know, Steve has been a, a good friend of ours and uh, a huge supporter of the uh, of the show since its beginning. And um, we've known him since his time with Nissan in North America. He actually spent fifteen years with Nissan in a variety of different roles, uh, leading up to communications manager now during the interview. <clears throat> You'll learn a little bit about Steve's experiences in Nissan North America, and we're going to speak in uh, great detail about the Delta Wing and its evolution in the Ziad RC. And now uh, we'll briefly speak about other projects with Steve uh, that he also been a uh, part of, such as the Nissan GT Academy. Just a heads up in advance, we go pretty deep into the detail during the interview. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the Delta Wing, go ahead and see our show notes Uh, We have a few good links for you to check out. Uh, Without further ado, uh, here's our interview with Mr. Steve Yeager. Welcome to another episode of the Nissan Nerd Podcast. With me, as always, is Mike Delschmidt, and we've got a special guest today, um, Mr. Steve Yeager, who's joining us. Mm. Recently, uh, freshly retired, now out of Nissan, um, a bit of a living legend amongst some. Uh, always fun to talk to, but he's been a long-time friend of the show. Uh, Steve, how are you doing today?
2: Good. I'm doing great. How are you guys? <laughs> Feeling good. Good. Hey.
1: Now, uh, Steve, I don't know. I've I've probably known you quite a number of years. Uh, I was going through my phone here the other day, and I guess before we called you for the show, and I was like, I just realized I was like, man, I had four phone numbers for you throughout <laughs> all the years we've known each other. I realized that you were uh, you were in communications with Nissan for so long. You know, no pun intended. But I'm like, man, I got four phone numbers. I think I got two, maybe three emails for you too as well.
2: Yeah, I had to go out and get my own when I retired, but uh, I'm glad you had that one as well. <laughs> and and what was your title
1: that you uh, that you just recently retired with?
2: Well, I was I was a communications manager, and basically my beat was safety, uh, heritage, and dealer communications. And when we had our uh, motorsports teams in the U.S., um, I also did motorsports PR. Now, you, uh, when did you officially start with Nissan? I started in uh, January of 2005, and I was recruited to come do internal communications at the manufacturing plant. Um, you know, came to work at the Big Smyrna plant when headquarters was still out in Los Angeles. Um, yeah. They moved to Tennessee in 2007. I did about six years at the plant, and then I was asked to come over and do uh, motorsports and safety predominantly, uh, in 2011 by the VP, by our VP. And then he, uh, and I said, motorsports, I mean, so, um, and then very soon after that, the, uh, heritage collection, we could kind of see the potential that journalists might be interested in driving some or checking out our old cars. And several of us kind of came up with this concept of, we could pair up some of the old Datsuns and old Nissans with the newer models and maybe do a back-to-back drive and kind of show how far technology had come and whatever. And it got to be a really fun thing, and journalists really liked it. So the heritage thing kind of grew.
1: All the old promo stuff like in the 90s and the 2000s, I mean, that was heavy. You know, you would use the, the old, you know, especially like, a, I guess, the z you know, as the new models in the three fifties and the three seventies came through, I mean you, you could definitely see how you, you guys um showed the lineage and gave that nod uh to the older well, the great models. Thing,
2: and-, and the great thing about the Z is it's always been long nose, short rear, six-cylinder, uh you know, it had that rear-wheel drive. It was always that it always had kind of a certain DNA. And uh so that was it was always nice to be able to drive. And of course in the heritage collection we had every generation of z and so that that was really nice to be able to showcase that
0: the heritage collection that you have uh, is is it in nashville or and in, in how how big is it
2: yeah it's um i think it's about 70 cars at any one time down in uh in the lane museum where they they're they stay uh there's about i want to say 45 or 50 cars 20 of them are off site somewhere but um some of the off-site ones are you know, like first production Centra, the first production uh, Maxima that came off the Smyrna line. We, we kind of keep those. Also in the Heritage Collection is four or five racing cars and probably six or seven concept cars. from. They're, they're all the way from non-running kind of like show cars uh, to, to actually running concept cars that never were produced. And then there's just a whole variety. Every generation of Z, and pretty much every model that was significant in the U.S. market, with just a couple of exceptions. And and Dave Bishop, who runs the collection, is always looking to add to the collection with a, with a good example of a car that maybe they don't have. But they've got a pretty good selection. Some of these came through. Like I know
1: we ha- you have the heritage museum in the basement um, at the headquarters. I've, uh, I think we recently went by the Peterson Museum uh, out in California, and uh, you, you've got a small collection there, too, as well, right? Or Nissan has a small collection yeah. there, too, as yeah, well. Yeah,
2: they, right? they did the Roots of Monozukuri, and so they asked um, several of the Japanese manufacturers to showcase cars that were kind of that bridge from post-war Japan to the hot sellers, the five tens and whatever that people all know in the late sixties, early seventies, kind of the bridge, those early sixties, mid sixties cars that still had that Japanese feel, but they were starting to come of age. And, uh, all the Japanese manufacturers had examples there. And it was a really cool show.
1: Now You're no stranger to, um, uh, to your years with Datsun or to your years with Nissan and Datsun for that matter, because you have some history with camel, right?
2: Yeah. I, Right out of college, almost uh, a couple of years out of college, I was asked to pull a show car that was a Bob Sharp Racing 240Z with big bubble flares, and um, I took it around to shopping centers and malls, and (laughs) I wore my Camel Pack uniform and all that (laughs) for RJ Reynolds Tobacco. Reynolds sponsored those racing series, Camel GT Winston Cup for NASCAR, because you couldn't advertise cigarettes on TV anymore in the late sixties. And Bill France and Ralph Seagraves came up with the idea of like, well, let's just take it out to the people and sponsor racing events and paint everything, the color of cigarette packs and what have you. And it was very effective marketing and kind of made the roots of the sport, uh, the partnership. It's not allowed anymore, but it really got racing series on good footing. So I was this young guy pulling the show car around and I get to do the racing events and we do press days and I get to drive the pace car on the track some, and it was a lot of fun. But uh, Adam Carolla has bought that car, and um, it's been restored to just beautiful finish. And uh, I was lucky enough to present Adam a uh, couple of years ago when we were the featured mark at the Rolex Monterey reunion. Uh, we did a podcast, Adam Carolla's podcast, and I gave him one of my old shirts that kind of goes with that car that he has. So it was uh, it was cool to see that all Old oh, that's car cool. again. Still had
1: yeah, the pack of cigarettes, your pack of lucky camels the, oh, yeah, the yeah. camel, <laughs> and I
2: think it was camel filters and then I think when it came back in eighty one, it sat <laughs> out for a year during a recession back then and uh, came back as camel lights. I guess that was a sign of the times. But, uh, <laughs> healthier, <laughs>
1: healthier, gentler time. A,
2: they didn't make a smoke, but they said, if you do smoke, you better be smoking
0: our brand. That's what they told me. That was,
1: that's what I was going to say in my next question. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, how much did they pay you to smoke them? And yeah. Like,
0: <laughs> so, uh, so Steve, I had heard you were talking about driving the camel car. You said in, in the you said? Did you say in like grocery store parking lots and on public yeah, roads? We would,
2: yeah, we would take it off the trailer and you know rev it up and you know. Of course, I'm in my 20s and and so if it was a Sunday evening and the in the you know the, everybody was cleared out, I'd, of course, I'd park the truck and trailer far away where it wasn't up against the store. So. <laughs> I'd I'd give it a little bit of gas and juice it out to the trailer, and uh, (laughs) you know, kind of. It kind of seems silly now, but it was a little bit of a visceral thrill. And and of course, you'd have little kids and stuff, and they'd never heard a racing car, and you know, it is. It's a, it's a deafening. uh, It had the whole full Bob Sharp racing setup with the fifty. 50 McCooney side drafts and these just straight back headers and Ooh. it was loud. And so when you got on it, you know, these kids were covering their ears and they were all getting excited. <laughs> and, you know, that was part of the stick anyway, was you were getting people excited about racing.
0: Were there any uh, run-ins with uh, local enforcement at all? or?
2: Well, I actually got the job. <laughs> I got, my predecessor wrecked wrecked the show car, not the Datsun, but he had a Porsche Turbo. That uh, was our other one. Yeah, uh, other show car, and he had wrecked it at uh, Daytona Mall, right oh, across man. from the Speedway, and he had—I uh, oh. guess he had—he had stabbed the throttle on this nine thirty-four, and it had turbo lag, and it just got away from him, and he ran over a bunch oh. of big concrete. Yeah, it was—it was a mess. So my first duty was to get out and sweep up the mess and take it up to <laughs> Brumos in Jacksonville and get them to work on it, and then I took the Dotson from Jacksonville all the way out to the West Coast, and I would do—I I did all the West Coast races. You know, for, wow! For, Day
0: one's lesson was don't be that that guy. They exactly. That yeah, guy. it was like here's what not to do. So, <laughs> <I> <laughs> they just so gave a, be, they gave was,
1: this gap, <laughs> well, was still you this know,
2: you're a young guy. You're a young guy. <laughs> you got a uniform and a race car, and you're in a mall, and you're single. It's like. All right, this job is mindless, but I could do this for a while. And I think after about two years, I was, I was ready to, to leave it. But I, I think I did it for close to four years.
1: So you also did. Uh, you have a pretty good history in Atlanta. And uh, we were yeah. talking, kind of off uh, off record here about the SCCA uh, runoff. I um, mean, you yeah. you were a witness of those of the big parties, and I think you even messed around with the newsletters back
2: in the day, right? Well. I started going, I, I really got interested, I've been interested in cars since I was three, but I never got into motorsports, and, and in college, I I had a roommate that said, hey, let's go down to the runoffs at Road Atlanta, and so we started going down there in the 70s, and that's when Bob Sharp was in his prime, and uh, guys like Don Devendorf and John Morton and Bob Tullius and all those old icons were in their heyday racing, and so we started going to Road Atlanta because it was the closest track to uh, <clears throat> to where I lived in North Carolina. But later, um, after my days with Camel, I came back and I was working as a graphic designer. Lived in the Atlanta area, and I would I started doing the programs and some of the graphic de- uh, the layout and design on the programs for all the races at Road Atlanta. So a couple times a week, I'd go up there and work in a little office, and watch the cars go around out the back window. So. It was fun. And it was a Dotson track back then. I mean, they had the, for years, the bridge was painted Dotson and then later Nissan. And Dick Roberts was a huge, I knew him from my days in Camel. He was a huge figure in the racing scene and had a lot of a lot of clout. And, you know, back in the 70s and 80s is when Dotson won so many national championships and all these different classes. So he was quite a titan. What were the seventies like in that
1: time? Like, I mean, paint us a picture of like, cause now you go to a, you go to a motorsports event and it's, it's fairly tame, I think. But yeah. I mean, I've heard some crazy stories. We had Pepe Pombo on here recently and they were talking about, you know, all these parties and like, it was like, like, I guess the way they party for oh, yeah. like 24 hours Le Mans, that kind of thing. Yeah. What was that
2: like? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, 24 hours, hours Le Mans, I always say is like a, it's a French motorsport event, but it has British fans. And it's and the British <laughs> fans become soccer hooligans pretty shortly after the fourth or fifth beer. And in motorsports, I think, in the 70s was like that. I mean, Road Atlanta, the infield was full of people camping. They're sleeping in their vans, cars, tents. Everything was going on all night long. It was just crazy. But Watkins Glen in the day, uh, some of the old-timers will remember, they had a, a place called The Bog, and they would – they would steal cars, <laughs> grab people's cars, and drive them down in there. And if they got stuck, <laughs> they'd set them on fire. <laughs> and uh, I mean, and you know, the legend was that they they got a hold of a school bus, and that was quite a. They torched the school bus, getting stuck in the bog, and, and Sebring was uh, kind of X-rated, but it was ridiculous in the infield, and and still kind of is. But back in the day, it was kind of scary, really. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, racing was you know, the crowds were, were bigger back in the day. And I I just think there's so many more things to do. It's not that the racing isn't good. A lot of racing is excellent uh, nowadays, but, uh, I just think that back in the day it was, it just didn't have the competition.
0: Now there's more things competing for your attention as to what it was back before. So, you know, you had you know, talk about having three or four stations on the television. Now it's a hundred, 200, however many there are. So kind of relating that to racing and just out in real life. I I see what you mean where the sport is relatively still as strong, but it's just a lot more things to to do now. Okay.
2: Well, in the the runoffs, it was, you know, 22 national championships in three days. I think it's pretty similar now. And it was just the place to be in road racing. And uh, when road Atlanta had it, to me it was just the zenith of the, of amateur sports car racing. And I mean, it was amateur in quotes because you had guys like John Morton and Bob Sharp and Paul Newman and Jim Fitzgerald, you know, these guys were anything but amateurs. I mean, they were, <laughs> they were professional racers, but, but you had Dotson against Porsche. You had Corvette against Cobra. You had just all these battles, you know, between the marks. And it, it just was, was such an amazing thing. And I, I think, you know, everything runs its course and, and support from the manufacturers has, has come and gone and in the different series and, uh, you know, it's just not, not quite the same, but, uh, you know, Le Mans is the exception. I think Le Mans still draws enormous crowds. Uh, Formula One draws enormous crowds. Um, you can still get them. And, and I think when, uh, there were a few races when World uh, Pirelli World Challenge was paired with IndyCar. You know, you got some pretty good-sized crowds at some of those tracks, but it's, it's just not the crazy carnival that it used to be. Nobody wants to get bare maced on national TV, I yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, you see some of those guys out there that just, they must have forgot their sunscreen, and it's, it's Sunday afternoon, and they look like <laughs> a lobster, you know. You feel bad <laughs> for them, but they had a great time you're
1: going to peel off skin chips off of them into the next two days their
2: buddies are dragging them up the hill to the
0: car (laughs) (laughs) still a little bit of that going on uh so getting into today's life you have recently retired about about six months ago a little more than half a year ago and i wanted to ask uh you know what's what's life been like for you since then and what's life like for you now well
2: it's uh
0: Every day's Saturday.
2: <laughs> and I think people uh now that we've had this whole COVID thing, I think everybody kind of gets that. You know, it's like what day is it? What month is it? You know? Yeah. But uh in, in retirement, I mean I've caught up on a few things that I wanted to get done. I've I own three cars and a motorcycle and, and I have tinkered a little bit with those and I've taken some motorcycle rides and you know, even, even during this, uh, pandemic, I've been able to, I've got a few buddies that we, we take motorcycle rides and just, you know, it's something, You it's kind of a isolation, a sport. So we, we ride together, so to speak, but, uh, yeah. you know, that's been fun, but yeah, tinkering with the cars and catching up on catching up on stuff i didn't have time to do on the unfortunate thing about this situation that we're in now is i haven't been able to go see my grandkids or anything like that in a couple of months and that's something i look forward to doing more of but yeah i mean i i'm I'm gonna start taking up painting and i I used to paint a little bit and i'm gonna do that again i haven't quite started but i'm gonna be doing that soon all frontal
1: nudes i'm assuming
2: <laughs> no, I, I get ideas for stuff, but it's always off the wall stuff. I, but uh, no, no nudes.
1: <laughs> we'll we'll push your paintings here on the uh, on the group on the group chats as long as yeah. they're uh, as long as uh, you know they're they're respectful. All right, so yeah. Well,
2: you know, I, I could sell them.
0: They could, yeah. You know, I, I asked Mad Mike once what it was like for him for retiring I asked him you know how how is it that you continuously drive cross-country for all these events you know you, you're retired you know you've got family and everything else and of course he has he, he gives it the, the, the amount of attention that it deserves but I asked him you know why still do this and he, he looked me in the eye and he goes there's only so many tomatoes that you can plant Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I can hear him saying that too. Yeah. You know, and Mike, Mike was in, he was an executive, so he was used to, you know, being busy all the time. And so I'm sure it's an adjustment for him, but yeah, you do, you have, all of a sudden you have this big, you know, week ahead and I try to put a couple of things in every day to kind of stay busy, but you know, I'd love to get involved. Uh, you know, certainly with uh, Zcon, I've told those guys and, you know, hey, sign me up to do something, you know, I can, (laughs) I can put cones out or whatever and hang out, but, but, you know, I like to, and I do uh, volunteer dog walking and, and different stuff like that, but, uh, you know, just something to stay busy every day, So it hasn't been bad so far.
0: So I've been lucky enough to be one of your friends on Facebook for for just a while now, and I, I see part some of these adventures that you're talking about. I've seen them, in the <laughs> pictures that you share, the stories that you share, and you you mentioned the COVID thing, and I know you, you know. And please clear this up. Did you almost get locked out of the United States because of this? Yeah, <laughs> I, I was uh,
2: I, I was a little I was a little tight in the throat uh, for a few days back in in March. A buddy of mine, Jeff Brockman, lives in uh, on Lake Atitlán in Guatemala. Beautiful place. And he said, hey, let's take a road trip, drive with me through Mexico, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll see these places in Mexico, make our way down. And so I had this three-week trip, uh, a week of going down there and stopping, seeing the sites in Mexico, and then a couple weeks in Lake Atitlán and, and Guatemala, um, and uh, staying through pretty much the end of March. Well. We got about three days into the trip and all of a sudden, you know, it's like they're closing the border between Mexico and Guatemala oh. in 48 hours. So we had, to, <laughs> we had to totally just throw away all the tight sightseeing that he'd planned, beeline it down to the border, you know, get across, get to his house. Because at least we, if we were at his house. It wasn't going to run up hotel bills. We were, you know, at least he was home. Yeah. Well, and then every day that we were there and it's a beautiful place and we were having a lot of fun. But they closed down the town. Um, Panahashal is the city on the south side of the lake. And um, that's kind of where you go to get restaurants and shop in the markets and stuff. Well, they closed everything down <laughs> within like 24 hours after we got there. And so the next few days was I moved my flight up and then they closed the airport to all flights. So that, that wasn't any good. So we have basically hired a driver for like $35 each to drive us all the way to the border. Wow. And yeah. And uh, the the name of the town is escaping me. But anyway, he drove us, you know, four hours to the border in this van with, with four people. And then, uh, you know, we walked across the border, got a cab. There weren't any flights that night. So we, booked a flight for the next day got to mexico city and then it was iffy whether mexico city was going to shut down flights to the u.s and we got in under the wire there and uh, so all the way we're calculating okay if we get dead-ended here what are we what's our backup plan so our backup plan had been to rent a car and drive from mexico city to laredo texas which normally I i always like a road trip but I wasn't looking forward to that one. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I got home, uh, you know, March 21st. And Houston Airport was deserted already. It, it was already getting pretty dicey, even domestic flights, because uh, some of the air traffic centers were getting sick outs. And, you know, people actually getting coming down with illnesses and they were shutting them down. And so I was I've never been so glad to get home. And then I had to kind of quarantine here for I think it was like 10 days. Um, I, I know they say two weeks, but I, <laughs> I, I basically, uh, you know, had to kind of isolate a little bit for about 10 days. And then, so, you know, it's just been uh, my girlfriend, Amy and I, and, and we're just pretty much us and the dogs. And we've been kind of hanging out and like you guys, the most dangerous thing we do is grocery shop. <laughs>
0: so,
2: <laughs> but that trip coming back i i was i was lucky to have latched onto a couple from maine that spoke fluent spanish and it really made me appreciate knowing the language because when you're in rural mexico you can't expect people to speak english anywhere you know but especially there and it really helped to have them kind of cut through some of the you know, questions and answers
1: well you're also a tall drink of water too so not only do you stand out through complexion
2: oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, also, out, you stand out, 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 the out the, crowd the too.
2: Average. yeah I, i'm like a foot <laughs> taller and 80 pounds heavier than anybody in town just about but uh, when we got to the when we got to the town in the border town in mexico and I, i'm still trying to think the name is just escaping me but anyway it was way down south It they had bananas growing it was so far south but uh you know, the old Volkswagen Beetles are still the taxi cabs. Well, oh, the yeah. Nissan Suru. Which Nissan is the, Suru. The Suru, yeah, is the 92 Sentras that they made up until a couple of years ago. That's kind of the bread and butter. But they still have some old Beetles, and, and we got in a Beetle and with all of our stuff. And I was jammed up against the windshield on that one. So yeah. I would have thought they would have strapped you across the roof or something. Oh, uh, I was just uh, – <laughs> <laughs> it's great well the, the interesting thing too is uh, i had allergies going on because you know when you're heading south that time in M- march you get to about south texas and stuff is already blooming and so it's in your head now you're clearing your throat all the time and kind of congested and you're thinking do i have it so all of that kind of lends into the the uh the ambiance of the moment
1: yeah, it probably didn't help all those bottles of tequila you're probably throwing back the whole time on vacation. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's, it, Everything's cheap in Guatemala and uh, it's uh, including liquor. But, uh, but you know, the, the thing we look back on, I mean, I, I had a call with one of my friends who lives down there. And you know, had I not gotten out when I did, I would have been there. I'd still be there. See, I think you would already be
1: speaking fluent Spanish by now. Fluent, man. You'd yeah. be so
2: fluent. Yeah. You would have already started a
1: surf shop you would have been fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, obviously you have many, many years. You survived COVID at this point by the yeah. time this will air. You, will ha- you would have survived it. You've res- survived your years of camel smoking their unfiltered <laughs> cigarettes. Yeah. You've survived Nissan. And, um, you know, I- I'm really passionate about one particular subject and, you know, I was always curious about what happened with it, and and I always thought it was extremely revolutionary. and I put a bunch of uh, articles and episodes about the Nissan Delta Wing on our uh, on our page, our Facebook page, many times. And then you and I started a dialogue about it and how you uh, remember a lot of it, and um, you started giving me a lot of insights on it. We, me and Mike, kind of started digging into it, and we were fans yep. of the project too as well. But I wanted to talk about. A little bit about that project here with you here today um for a little backstory for some of those folks that don't know um they know a little bit about the delta wing i'm going to give you a little brief history and then um i'm just going to kind of ask you steve on uh what your take on some of this stuff was as we go through it so the nissan delta wing from what i understand the original designer was ben bulby this is pre him any involvement with nissan right yeah and then um from my Internet searches looks like the project began in around 2009 with Bulby, and uh, apparently it was to potentially pitch a new design, uh, car design for the 2012 prototype unveil that was uh, set to come up in February, I think, in 2010 at the Chicago Auto Show. Um, apparently, they released it to a, from what I can tell here, a mixed bag of reviews due to it uh, <laughs> being as oh, yeah. radical as it possibly was at the time. Ultimately, a working design was created, but Indy ended up. Uh, I think they ended up going with a uh, updated Delara uh, instead. And I guess they re-upped to that contract, and the power plant was still kind of up in the air. Now Michelin, who originally uh, had some early confidence in the project, I guess it was an urge or a nudge of maybe to Renault and Nissan to see if they wanted to join the program. You know anything about that?
2: Yeah, I think that at some point in uh, in Darren Cox, who had been kind of one of the innovators uh, or the inventors of uh, GT Academy, kind of got that I, that going with with I think it was Bowlby and and maybe Duncan Dayton, I think was involved with it at that time still. but anyway, the uh, Highcroft racing was kind of formed at that point. and then uh, yeah, it was kind of like we could work with uh, we can work with a race shop in England, build a build a motor. Uh, yeah, you know, 1.6 liter motor that that fits it. And, uh, and you guys can be the sponsor along with Michelin.
1: So the, and from what I got here, it looked like, and that was before cha- I got
2: involved. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so the original, from what I can tell here, it looked like Ashton, uh, they, they pulled the chassis off of an Aston Martin composite tub. Uh, it looked like pro drive may have put that together with the steel yeah. rear section frame from what I can gather. Now, from here, I guess the list gets a little crazy. Um, you know, the rear end was, from what I can tell here, a double wishbone with adjustable dampeners, maybe an assist spring. Now, the front end shocks—they're—they're they're basically a competition mountain bike design, from what I can tell. Um, <laughs> you know, about the size of the can of peas. Uh, did you ever get they your were eyes tiny, on that?
2: Tiny, tiny. <laughs> yeah, the shock—the shocks in the front and the tire size was just. When you realized that this was going to be uh, running the speeds that the car was capable of, it was it was amazingly small.
1: Now, the fronts were from what I'm—they're uh, coming in at at four inches
2: wide. Four inches wide. Yeah, it was a, it was a special tire that had to be completely created and designed by Michelin. Yeah,
1: it looked like they uh, they did them from scratch, and apparently they made slicks and crosshatches for rain. And I was just like, I was blown away. I mean, if you go through all the articles that we put up on the Facebook page, it's one of the most astounding, I guess, things because you can noticeably tell. And apparently there were guys like picking them up with fingers. And I'm like, that's how super light they
0: were.
2: (laughs) Well, Ben Bowlby was like, he's a brilliant guy. And Ben is so good at explaining things. I always said he was like having Bill Nye, the science guy. But he was, a, he was a kind of designer of the car, and he was a terrific communicator. And he said, people want to know how the front end stayed down, being narrow and skinny like it was. Why didn't it take off? And he said, take a sledgehammer and lay it on the ground. And you've got this big, you know, the wide mallet head of the sledgehammer. But go down to the end of the handle and put your finger under it, and it doesn't lift up that easy. And and it, that's basically it was like a sledgehammer, on the ground, oh. and and, and wow. the drag coefficient it was slick, but it 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 had tremendous uh, you know downforce and, and no wings, amazing.
1: Well, the, the the crazy thing about it is I remember, you know, originally they were talking about these specialty tires burning through and, you know, what's going to be the downforce and how is it going to play into the tires heating up and, and having to replace those suckers all the time. But apparently um, the claim early on was the stress on the tires was so low Mm -hmm. that the tires would basically outlast any other competitor.
2: Yep. The the (laughs) low fuel consumption and the low tire wear was a huge advantage over over the competitors. I mean, and, and really the only limiting factor was it had to run a... Lamont had to run a very small fuel tank, which kind of took away the fuel economy angle, but it, it got double the fuel mileage of, of everything it was racing against. And the, and the tire wear was way beyond double or half. You know, it was many times uh, advantages over the competitors.
1: You know, the, the skin or the composite of this thing wasn't... It didn't. Uh, from what I can tell here, it wasn't carbon fiber. It looked like it was something called Reams, a recyclable energy-absorbing matrix system. It, it was like some new composite, apparently, with Tegris and other films. You know, um, that, you know anything about it?
2: No, that, I, that I, makes sense. I got I got a piece of it when it got destroyed in <laughs> <Atlanta. It> Florida. <laughs> it flipped, and there were a lot of pieces because it, you know, it, it went upside down, and they had to do some. But I, I had. I have a piece of it somewhere. It, it, it reminds you of carbon fiber, but I'm not sure of what it, you know, it could be. It could be a whole different material with that part. I'm, I'm, I yeah. can't remember what that is, but it yeah, is it a composite material.
1: I think they were saying, because the, originally their fear, which ultimately we'll, we'll talk about it here a little bit later, but yeah. I guess it was the weave, you know, after carbon fiber crushes, you know, if you had it in your hand before the weave starts going, once the air gets into it and everything else. And, but apparently yeah. the claim was they were trying to protect the car against projectiles. I guess, I don't know if how accurate that was, but. That part of it, I, I'm
2: not too sure. I, you know, it was ultra light. So whatever it was, was, had a, had a. Kinship with carbon fiber for sure.
1: So this thing was about from best guesses. I think we're looking about 15 foot long, about six and a half wide
2: at the rear. I'm not sure. It was probably about six feet.
1: So, Uh, you know, the big complaint through some of these articles were like the half of the aerodynamic footprint as most of these other race cars at the time. And all the downforce was on the underside of the body.
2: Yeah, it was like an airplane wing, kind of holding it to the ground. Yeah, so the the air going under was faster than the air going over.
1: Oh my god! Did you get a did you get a chance to get the sucker? Uh, did you get eyeballs on it when it had an opportunity to to get the shakedowns?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got to. It, it was tiny, and it, and it weighed so. It was so light, but one of the limitations when we when we um, we had a chance to offer. A couple of journalists a chance to drive it. I don't want to get ahead of the story, but they could only be so large. Uh, I, I was too large. So um, Lucas Lucas Ordonez, I think Lucas is close to six feet, but he's very slender, and he was kind of the max. Um, so somebody that who was a little heavier or taller wasn't going to fit. You had to be pretty narrow and and not not too too tall to mm. fit into that. So uh, the,
1: the engine power plant, it, uh, you remember anything about that? Yeah. I mean,
2: Ray Malek, RML uh, in England, built it. He did a lot of touring car engine work. Uh, built, he built some pretty pretty good British touring cars. And basically, he developed a 1.6-liter turbo that was good for about 300 horsepower some very similar direct injection very similar to the juke in terms of profile and everything it was definitely a bespoke racing engine but it was uh you know it was it was very very similar in in footprint print to the to the juke and uh with 300 horsepower and i think wet it was thirteen hundred pounds or so <laughs> so <laughs> it was it, power to weight ratio was plenty. But uh, but yeah, RML RML would also built like the Juke R. Remember the Juke R. The Juke yeah. with the yeah. GTR. Yeah, they they are a proper race shop in, in England, <laughs> and, and so they uh, they did the work on the uh, the motor.
1: I remember seeing that Juke R. And they uh, they shoehorned that motor <laughs> in that car. <laughs> well,
2: basically they basically they took a GTR and. They took a Juke body and cut it in half and widened it slightly to to fit over a GTR. So underneath it was a GTR, but uh, they had to move the air conditioning system to the back. So it actually had air conditioning. It was just the unit was in the back of the car. But oh uh, yeah, that was it was like a GTR only squirlier because it had a short wheelbase. Wow. Yeah, that was. I remember that seeing quite that thing at Z
1: days, and they were. They were running up and down uh <laughs> t- yeah, up and down the canyon there and it was just like, oh my God. It was a uh, and I had a chance to kind of put my put my eyes under the hood a couple times and it, it was just it, it was done so well that
2: uh they um, did I mean the, you yeah. know, Motorsports Valley in England where those racing shots, Pro Drive, you mentioned earlier, RML, JRM, and of course all the Formula One teams. I mean, they're the best of the best in that that whole region. And so when they do a racing car. It's it's well done. You know the fittings, the hose. There's not a lot of janky stuff. It's it works. And so, um, you know, when you saw the Juke R and you saw it up close, it was like this is this is like a proper little racer.
1: Wow. You know? <laughs> well, let's get back to the Delta Wing yeah. here. Uh, a few things that I wanted to ask you. Now, about this time, I, I'm assuming you were probably there and had an opportunity to witness it. Now, you saw the. Did you see it at Sebring or you saw it at Road Atlanta?
2: We had a show car here to do the unveiling at Nissan headquarters. And then I took some journalists to Le Mans to write it, write about it. And we, we went over to see it race. And um, I was actually right there at the, the big gate just before the Porsche curves where it, it, it got contacted and, and, and limped off the track. And the, the marshals pushed it back off out of the racing surface uh-huh. and uh that's where satoshi modiyama yeah. you know tried to tried to get it running again because those are the rules you gotta you gotta work on it yourself how, and,
1: uh, how heartbreaking watched, was that
2: <laughs> oh just watching him i mean you know because you had all these engineers who were brits <clears throat> brits and americans at the fence, and then a couple of japanese translator guys you know kind of relaying the information try this try that and um yeah, he was just trying to get it in gear and get it to, you know, get things freed up so that he could get it to drive to the pits. And, you know, his heart was broken. He just he wanted to be able to finish the race and, you know, get it into the nighttime hours. But it was about uh, I'd say the contact happened close to 10 o'clock at night at Le Mans, It stays light until about 1030, 1045 at night it's a big difference from Daytona and, you know, you got so much of the races in the daylight and it was dusk when he was trying to work on it. And, you know, as it got darker and darker and then they finally realized it wasn't going to get running. They, and he, that's where he kind of just broke down. He was just, he defeated. He felt defeated. Mm. And, so, uh, for
1: those that don't know, uh, the the car debuted at two th- in 2012, obviously at this 24 Hours Le Mans, as a, a position 56. You now, for those that don't know, that's a spot basically reserved for a car that's not racing, uh, not for points anyway, but it's there to advanced uh, motorsports technology. And, uh, Motoyama was a was a driver at the time. Unfortunately, he got. I would say he got lightly contacted yeah. by another uh, by a Toyota driver and yeah. basically went off into a wall. And um, yeah. uh, Mike, me uh, and you were talking about this. You had an opportunity to review that video.
0: Oh yeah, it was so heartbreaking though, and it just—I saw the collision, and it was just—it it almost seemed like there was no uh, no consideration uh, for for the Delta wing, and you know that that hit was just so so quick. Yeah, you know, and and it just felt so bad. I was, actually, I was a little curious though, because I mean, just you know, watching how you said the translation and trying to repair, and per the the rules of the race, how you said, the crew can't go to the track to repair the car. The car has to make it under its own power to the pits. Yeah. Is that correct. That was yeah. the technicality. So that's why there is, you know, no no one was allowed. But I was wondering, you know, you said the Porsche curves, but. How far was that from the pit lane?
2: I could be mistaken, but in, in English units, it, I think it was less than a quarter of a mile. It was some, a few hundred yards. I mean, it, you kind of had this, this area where it was, and I think the Porsche curves were just beyond that, and then you come out of the Porsche curves and you're coming onto the, uh, the front straight. So, um, he wasn't far. I mean, in Lamar at eight and a half miles, you could be way worse off than he was. He was, you know, if he could have just got it to chug across, um, you know, to the, to pits, they would have possibly been able to fix it. Um, although, uh, you know, some of the crew may say, Oh no, you know, something was destroyed, but I don't know. I, I think it was something they could have replaced a gearbox or a rear suspension part or whatever, but, um, we'll never know. But, it, you know, it, there, uh, it was, they were fortunate in that the so many of the engineers were could stand at the fence, you know, 15 feet away and talk to him and he could come over to the fence and actually converse with them. You know, he just couldn't, they couldn't touch the car. Um, cool. they, they couldn't get out onto the, you know, beyond the fence, but that was, uh, you know, the car, I think initially, I mean, if you look at the history of the Delta wing, it was designed initially that it was an Indy car concept where open wheel, open wheel type racer. Um, there's not a lot of contact. And I think in the history of the Delta wing, you know, it, one thing that was proven was it, it wasn't very stir. It wasn't very robust. It was very sturdy and it was very well designed and beautifully engineered and built, but, if it took a lick, it wasn't well protected. And so that's probably, you know, that was kind of the harbinger for the future was that shunt at, at the 24 hours is that it, it didn't survive, a, you know, that. Yes.
0: Um, you know. I guess you're saying when you put up a collision between a car like a Delta wing versus any other car that has elements you know that are heavier cars, you yeah. know, aluminum and steel perhaps, and how he said the lightweight of the car is sort of, not as robust. So it was sort of a downfall. So not yeah, contact yeah. was no, no on that one.
2: Yeah. It, it, and, and inevitably in a, in a course of a season, you know, you're going to have your contact and, uh, it, that's, uh, that's a big part of the sport and endurance racing there. There's, you know, it gets scuffed up and dinged up at, from time to time and cars can limp around and get, get repaired. But, um, after Le Mans in June, uh, you know, the sites were, were kind of, kind of moved to Atlanta and they said, we're going to, we're going to campaign it at the Petit Le Mans. And that, you know, that it did extremely well.
1: How was the, the, uh, how was the vibe at Petit Le Mans with that?
2: Oh, every, every, it was, it was wild. And and Petit got a huge crowd anyway, and it was a real good crowd that year. The big LMP one teams had kind of moved on in you know, the Peugeot's of the years, you know, before Audi, some of the big LMP one teams had left and Re- rebellion racing, I think was still there, um, LMP one, but, you know, still a big field, big crowd. And I think it was Friday practice, uh, Porsche driver production based Porsche clipped, uh, Gunner Jeanette and he went airborne and upside down and really tore up the car. And, One of the I got down there as they were start, you know, they were kind of most of the way through the rebuild, and um, there is a fast motion uh, video of the rebuild, which is just amazing to watch. But the nice thing about the the where they were pitted on the end, the fans would just line up and line up to see this car, and all during the rebuild, they were, you know, everybody was taking pictures and asking questions, and the crew was actually pretty good about talking to you know when they weren't busy when their part was done they'd go out and you know to the ropes and talk to the fans and the autograph sessions our drivers were really really generous with signing posters super popular with the fans and after the the incident where the car flipped they painted the hoops on top of the at the top of the car they painted them orange because the you know drivers were saying we just can't see it it's so small and so low and it comes up so quick, we, we just can't see it. And so they painted fluorescent orange on the top of the, the dual hoops. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess it worked because, uh, one, you had the hoops during the daytime hours, but also Petit Lama, you know, the last few hours or night. And it looks like a plane landing when it comes in because it had two, it had the big uh, lights on the flank and the ones in the center, and so it had this, the most amazing light array coming down at you, you know, coming up f- behind you. And, but the, the car finished fifth overall, but it was unclassified. So they didn't give it any pass arounds under caution. And some of the people who were keeping score said that it, it would have had a podium finish if they'd have been allowed uh, pass. So it would have been possibly as high as second, but definitely third uh, overall at Petit Le Mans. And that, that was. That was a pretty amazing drive, you know, its second time out. So the nice thing was it was, you know, obviously it wasn't the, the, the stature of, of Le Mans. Nothing is in endurance racing, but that's it, a pretty high stature U.S. race, and it did very well.
1: So shortly after that, I mean, did the uh, the project s- slowly started to change into, I guess, the Ziad. And then from there, it it just ultimately... It looked like there was other attention put on different programs. It looked like the LMP won. Well, because,
2: yeah, because mm-hmm. of the company and, and the electrification with the Leaf and, and all that, the Zod was kind of an extension. It was, a, it was a very similar kind of a car. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't have a lot of success. But then the G, GTR LM car that ran in 2015 that was going to be hybrid power basically had the uh, – kind of the front engine GTR setup up with, yeah. with the exhaust pipes coming out of the hood. And then the rear power for the rear wheels was going to be electric. Um, but they could never get the flybridge system to work as designed. And so it ended up being kind of a, a very lightweight GTR. <laughs> you know, a very aerodynamic lightweight GTR running against uh, prototype cars. But, uh, but yeah, the, the flywheel hybrid that they had just never – and I don't know whether it was a supplier issue, a design issue, a fitment. I I, I think that whoever they were going to buy it from didn't deliver kind of, what but I don't know. I don't know exactly. It would have been about 750 horsepower.
1: So at some point, I guess <clears throat> the Delta Wing took a back, uh, back step and then that was the end of that program, it sounded like?
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the, the folks at Highcroft and I guess it went over to the to the uh, IMSA team and and they uh, got Mazda power and they made it a coupe. They put a roof on it and, um, you know, they had some success. They had some pretty high qualifying results, but it became kind of a different car.
1: It started putting lasers on tigers and (laughs)
2: lasers on sharks and missiles. They had some real good drivers in IMSA. And it um, the one thing that, and this came out when later on when it uh, qualified really well at Daytona, we noticed that at Petit, the competitors in the uh, LMP2 cars were saying that they would kind of they would kind of pull away a little initially on the back straight at Road Atlanta, and then they said it would just come on like gangbusters on top end. It would just had an incredible capacity for top end, and so it was running. I think it was Marino Franchitti, who raced the car at Le Mans, was one of the team drivers, but was racing a competitive car um, at Petit Le Mans, um, you know, New Lucas and, and Gunnar Jeanette. And he, on the Monday afterward, when we let the media drive the Delta Wing for some articles, that was what they were talking about, was how fast it was at the end of the straightaway. So it was, you know, as well suited for long runs and, and high speed runs. Um, not just cornering and braking. After after the retirement
1: of the uh, Delta Wing program, I mean, what did the car uh, end up? Did it? Uh, is it in the basement of the uh, of the heritage? I don't.
2: I don't know. You know, if yeah, I don't know if it was converted to the the car that became the coupe that ran in IMSA. I'm not sure if that's the same car. I I guess it probably was, but. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where it is now, but it'll be in a museum somewhere because it truly was, a you know, a proof of concept that, um, it did a lot of things incredibly well and it delivered on the half of the fuel consumption fraction of the tire wear you know, tremendous potential with that power to weight ratio, but it was kind of like a cat running in a dog race. You know, it, it may be more agile and it may be, Faster and spots and everything, but just the the size and the and the um, kind of the the tube frame rugged nature of the of the competition. If it if it ever contacted them, it was it was going to be a tough go. <laughs> That's that was the beauty of Petit Le Mans, was with that big field at Petit Le Mans, Lucas and Gunner uh, were able to keep it out of trouble and still run it fast. And then uh, you know, so the in a sense, that Petit Le Mans run was was a real confirmation that hey this is a real race car this could do well
1: talk about needing the perfect run to (laughs) everything to be perfect to to get the results (laughs) you need.
0: and you mentioned uh how the focus kind of transitioned away from delta wing to the ziod and later to the gtr lm and from what i had read that the gtr lm was also a project that ben bolby was a part of so he he stayed with nissan is that right
2: well, yeah, I mean, we, he was contracted to, to build that car, um, Ziod, and then also GTRLM and the genius thing about, and there is a, there is a rolling chassis of that car in the Lane Motor Museum and the upstairs that everybody can see, uh, it doesn't have an engine in it, but it has everything else is the actual parts, the body, the tires, the, uh, just not the telemetry and the motor, but. What the front engine design did, it was front engine front wheel drive with a flywheel hybrid that would power the rear drive. But by saving all of that drivetrain, they were able to build like a little tunnel underneath the car straight through. And so it was it was truly like an airplane wing and you didn't have all that weight and that mass in the back of the car so you can make the car like an airplane wing and it it had it had really good aerodynamics um and was quite quite revolutionary and but but because your your gasoline powered engine in the front of the car was about 500 horsepower you are running up against these Audis and and Toyotas and and Porsches with 900 850 <laughs> but but it had 500 with excellent downforce to, it was supposed to have two about two fifty or so um, in hybrid power to the rear tires, and it was it was going to be pretty competitive. But without the hybrid and the you know the all wheel drive nature of it, propulsion is it, it was LMP two level speed you know turned out. But um, you know, to their credit they went ahead and made the run.
1: Yeah, and, uh, the uh, I think it was Jan and uh, when those guys got off at the GT Academy. I mean, they're amazing drivers, amazing talent. Uh, we'll definitely talk really? about the LMP1 in uh, another episode. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I uh, I was really impressed with that, especially you know at that time I was I was monitoring all the GT Academy winners and I mean he's still doing amazing as a driver right now. I follow his well, tweets got all the Jan. time.
2: You've got Jan, uh, cool. Brian Heitkotter in Pearlie World Challenge, won, yeah. what, like three, four races. He, yeah. he was in, on the podium a bunch. He uh, he had Nick Hammond uh, put the Z, the Doran Z on the pole at Elkhart Lake and was leading the race when he turned the car over. Um, and then we had, a, there was some issue in the pits or whatever and ended up ended up getting a third or whatever. But he was blowing the field away. That was his home track. Uh, Steve Doherty won some touring car races in the Altima, yeah. and, uh, one of the guys, um, the, the, the kid from, uh, Wolfgang, right. Uh, from Belgium, he's racing for Bentley now, I think. Um, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, I you know, you, you, you right. had those guys and that was the idea. I think ultimately was, you know, getting these guys in a position where they could get a ride elsewhere. And, and so you, you've seen a little bit of that, but you know, there's just so much, um, you know, it's like, you got to bring a bag of cash to race a car. And, and, you know, most of these guys are middle-class guys like us. And, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, there's just, um, you know, you got pro shoes and you got the, the, the paying drivers and, and they're kind of caught in the middle. They're, they're, they're pro, but they, uh, you know there's just a lot of competitions for those seats but uh hey brian's tearing it up brian heikotter's tearing it up in this virtual series that's been going on this summer i think he's won like three out of four
1: you know <laughs> so, yeah uh, i don't he's still I always good. tell
2: people i was like you know I- i'm
1: a huge fan of brian he's actually i consider yeah. him a pretty good friend too as well mm-hmm. and i've been trying to get him on the show for a minute but he told me he goes hey i'm a little tied up with all this stuff with the virtual stuff that's going to come up and i want to give 100 percent attention I completely understand but he's yeah. kicks butt in an uh, autocross in the national well, series and the solos he has,
2: he has won i can't remember the i think he might have taken a i can't remember what it was it a z32
1: he had a z32 uh yeah his z32 i think he ended up selling that but i think he had like I forgot what it was. It was like a Miata or something, but he was killing everybody well, with whatever that car he was. He
2: is taking he's taken some cars that were, you know, a little heavier and a little less competitive and, and uh, and still won. So he, yeah. you know, it's funny cause Brian's very quiet, but he's a very, very competitive guy, much like a John Morton. I mean, you know, you just know that <laughs> when they put on the helmet, they're, they're out to win. And so, you know,
1: yeah. and all
2: these guys, I mean, they wouldn't have been in the position they were in if they weren't competitive, but, but right. very nice guys. And it was fun to have worked with them.
1: Yeah. I always feel bad for them when they give them a, I think when I first met you, uh, what was it, the uh, Nismo Performance Academy that we were doing? Uh, you were doing, and I, I just I hitched a ride to do some freelance stuff at it, and then that's when I met Brian, and we got a chance to talk offline for a few minutes. And and I would see people come up and do quick little interviews with him, but it seemed like everybody was always doing the, a jab in the ribs about being uh, like a joystick racer, and it was just. But, you know, that when you got to right. know Brian, you know that his roots were already <laughs> in racing yeah. to begin with. He
2: well, just couldn't he had afford the, the ride. Had that, you
1: know, that's all it was.
2: He had that combination of he knew weight transfer, he knew grip. And, and you know, you look at, um, so Nick Hammond, you know, raced go-karts and stuff. Steve Doherty raced a lot Doherty. of dirt track, modified stuff. Um I'm not sure. McMillan was more of a bicycle racer or whatever, but but uh he was good. He was very good, very clean racer. Um, you know, they all had they all had some seat-of-the-pants experience. It wasn't all just virtual, but but the thing that got them where they got was the intensity to run all those laps and perfect it and get the times down and really be data driven and, and that's what really that's what a winner. Yeah. That, that's the same yeah.
1: thing all these guys do. I mean, they're like Mickey Lauda, Those guys, they were doing it, just not on the
2: virtual frontier. I mean, that's well, that's really what it was about. I can remember hearing uh, Mark Weber talking about, and he was talking about driving those modern LMP1 hybrid cars. And you're like a systems manager. You know, <laughs> you're not only driving <laughs> these cars, but you got to know. You got to know when to to save. You know when to coast a little bit and build up your electric and not use too much passing and you know so you've always got to be cognizant of all these these data systems and and you know that's no more cal yarborough roll up your sleeves and just go or blow you know kind of thing put your foot to the floor I mean, you definitely got to have the talent and the seat of the pants, but you got to be disciplined, very disciplined. Well, those kids were grit too. I mean, if you watch the – and I invite anybody
1: that watches the show to watch the, the, the first GT Academy. It's all on YouTube. You can watch it. Uh, the one with Brian Highcotters, I guess when I got introduced in it, because it went from being an, already in Europe, where or, Ordona's won it, I believe. The next year it was with – a uh, high cutter what he wanted and man i mean they put him through the paces if you it, it, they they're running every day they're doing push-ups i think they okay. even made him do some like green beret training or something it's insane like yeah. and then it's high stress which you know that's what racing is i mean they're they're little every day somebody was getting cut like one of your friends was <laughs> was leaving leaving <laughs> yeah. out the door and it was just i was like man it's like I, I and i started to think about it. it myself in that position i don't think i would have made it past the first few days. And um, kudos yeah. to those guys for making that great. Well,
2: Jeff Swart, you know? who is a car guy, he's very much a Porsche and a car guy. And I think he was involved in Art of Racing in the Rain. And he's been, he's shot commercials. He's just, a, he's a genius of a visual guy. Uh, Jeff Swart produced and, and directed, I think, those GT Academy. And they were they were pretty good TV. I mean, they were a lot compressed into those episodes. But mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the ultimate survivor, but it was instead of being forming alliances and being sneaky, you just you had to be good. You had to gut it out. And that's the way that's the way I always thought Survivor should have been is like the most capable. The toughest should have won it, but it was never that way on Survivor. But GT Academy, you know, Brian, if you remember the episode with Brian, is he, he did the distance run Mm -hmm. and it whipped him. I mean, he was, it wasn't in the kind of shape that he needed. And he talks about that all the time is like he kind of got off to a weak start. (laughs) And then little by little, he just creeped kept summoning it up and when he got behind the wheel he did it right. And when
1: I first watched that ep- mm-hmm. uh, first start of the season, I was like, I already knew Brian had won cuz I I kind of was like I watched it and then I mm-hmm. met him like, I don't know, and in between me like trying to watch it, I was in the middle of something else. And I already knew he won, but I I lost the first two episodes like he said he got off to a rocky start and I'm like, I was like, did he win this? And I had to go back and check my <laughs> my facts. Cause I'm like, maybe he came mm-hmm. in second and maybe I just didn't know. And then I went back and listened, I, I started watching it and he just kind of like swept the field at the end. Like you said, I mean, God, so, but he's, he's yeah. definitely, he's still to this day. So one of my favorite drivers and he may not be the most famous guy, but as far as character and yeah. grit and talent, uh, yeah. he he's, he's up there. So, you know,
2: and the interesting thing was, is over the course of time, first of all, the Doran racing hookup uh, Kevin Doran built such a beautiful Z and that car to run against Z 28 Camaros and Mustangs with V eights. And, and they, it was, it was in the mix every time, but you know, they, so we, we got some, and, and with the uh, always evolving, of course, the GTRs with Brian. And I mean, generally put, put some pretty good wheels under the guys. And, and you know, over time their families would come and, and, uh, they all came from, from supportive families and you got to meet them over time, you know, when you go to their home track or whatever, and their their girlfriend or their mom and dad would show up and it's just good folks. And so it was, it was great to meet them. I think the, I knew from the very beginning though, that the reality of racing is, you know, you just got to bring that bag of cash, whether it's your own money or, family money or a sponsor. And that's easier said than done. And and racing takes money. And so Nissan was providing the money, you know, on a certain level for, for those rides. But then when those rides are over, even though those guys really acquitted themselves very, very well, it wasn't like, okay, I'm just going to jump over to this other team.
1: Well, this has been a great episode. Uh, you know, we've we've talked about the Delta Wing, uh, touched on the LMP1, the GT Academy. I mean, we talked about so much in this episode, um, Steve. You know, I'm gonna ask, man. I'd love to have you back on uh, the show with us here in the future and uh, go over some uh, some of your other past discretions if you uh, <laughs> if you feel like coming on and talking about
2: them. Sure. Mike said, Mike said you're paying for this, right? You, you uh, yeah, we pay, we pay by the minute. You know, I, I'm <laughs> on a fixed income now. <laughs> collect, collect <phone> call. <laughs> uh, we'll take, we're no, going to
1: take 50% of your paint sales, your painting I, sales.
2: I would be happy to. You guys have done so much for the the love of the, of the brand. And I, you know, I, I feel like, you know, between you guys and Brian and Chris and Terry and Koji, the all of you guys are what make it happen at the grassroots level, and so I'm happy to, happy to contribute and have a little fun with you guys.
1: Yeah, it's always an honor to have you on, Steve. And, um,
2: you know, I just want to thank you again for,
1: for coming on, talking to us. Of course, you're 15 years with Nissan. You know, uh, we'll definitely have you on here again, uh, and uh, <laughs> we'll have a good time again. Yeah,
2: sounds good.
0: And there you have it. That is our episode with Steve Yeager about Nissan's Delta Wing project. Again, if you'd like to learn more about the story and the Delta Wing, check out the link in our show notes. We'll have numerous references, videos, and articles for you to check out.
1: Special thanks again to
0: Mr. Yeager for speaking with us
1: with his extensive history with Nissan and loads of free time these days. Uh, we hope to have him on the show again to talk to us about some of his other uh, stories nissan related stories and projects um in the meantime I want to remind you to subscribe and also like um, our podcast make sure to share it with your friends um we are trying to get our foot traffic um up there a little bit and we want to make sure that we get some new fans out there um on that end note i just want to remind all you guys to get in your garage as always uh get in there get wrenching and uh that's it mike that's all i got
0: all right buddy thanks everybody for being here and i'll say kanpai kanpai all right thanks again thank you for listening to this episode of the nissan nerd podcast hosted by miles hall and mike the new episodes are released every other monday and can be found on the podcast network of your choice if you like what you hear write us a review give us five stars and it would help us out a lot You can find content added regularly to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, so be sure to like and follow. And lastly, you can contact us at info at NissanNerd.com. Let us share events happening in your area and provide us suggestions for future content on the Nissan Nerd Podcast.